welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Tom Tadros, who is an electrophysiologist at the Harvard Medical School Brigham and Women's Hospital. And we discuss the East AFNet 4 study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is one of a series of recent studies from our EP colleagues from the electrophysiology community, which highlights the importance of early initiation of rhythm control therapy and how that provides a clinical benefit to our patients. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tom Tadros about the East AFNet 4 study. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with one of my good friends and excellent electrophysiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dr. Tom. He is faculty at the Harvard Medical School, and I've been out to the, the Brigham a couple of times now to see Tom in action, and it's been an absolute pleasure. So, Tom, thanks so much for coming out on the show. Oh, Armin, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, Tom... What I wanted to do is I wanted to pick your brain. As a cardiac surgeon, I'm always trying to figure out what what EPs are thinking, what what other folks are thinking. And, you know, there's been some really good articles, really impactful articles that have come out in the last couple of years in the New England Journal of Medicine from EPs like yourself. And so I was hoping today that we could talk about this, this one that came out in October of 2020. It's called the Early Rhythm Control Therapy in Patients with AFib. A lot of us know this as the East AFNet 4 trial. Is that something you'd be willing to do with us today? Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, I thought maybe for starters, you can help us kind of understand the context of this paper. So can you talk to us a little bit about, well, maybe just in general terms, what the purpose of this paper was, and then kind of the background of it, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the background. And when I was training as a fellow, we used to always quote this study called Affirm, which was also New England Journal of Medicine. That was back in 2002. And that study had more than 4,000 patients randomized to rate control versus rhythm control in atrial fibrillation and found no difference in all-cause mortality. And so from that, there was not really a big impetus to, to get everybody into sinus rhythm. Now, since then, there have been, there's been a lot of progress in our therapies for AFib, in particular ablation. And so the East AFNet 4 study really wanted to reassess whether rhythm control would be benefit in the long term for patients. So that was kind of the background of it. So the design of it, it's a, it's a perspective randomized controlled trial, multi-center, involving more than 2,700 patients. And they were randomized one-to-one to either have standard rate control strategy versus rhythm control strategy involving medications or ablation. And then they follow the patients over a medium of five years. And their composite outcome that they're looking at was composite of cardiovascular death, stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure or CAD. And they also looked at safety outcomes as well. 
And what they found in the study, if you want to go straight to that, or do you have any other questions before that? Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. So just for the audience to kind of realize, like here we are maybe essentially 20 years before this study, we have a firm that looked at, you know, rate versus rhythm control. And essentially we come out of that study learning, okay, well, you can probably manage patients either way. In a firm, you know, we had complications from amiodarone and rhythm control drugs like that. So there was this tendency to treat patients with rate control. And here we are 20 years later, and we kind of readdress the question again. But like you said, now we have some better tools, right? We have some ablation tools, other things, other medications, less toxic than amiodarone that may kind of change the, the, the narrative, if you will. Yeah, you brought up two good points. One is the, the type of medicines used. So in the firm trial, they used mostly amiodarone and sotalol, and those can have certainly toxic effects. And the other is the timing of it. That firm came out, I think just four years before that in 1998, this kind of landmark study by Michelle Esseguer in which he figured out by catheter studies that the pulmonary veins were the actual trigger of many cases of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So that was, but at, at that point, you know, that we didn't have 3D mapping. We didn't have the safe catheters we have now that have contact force to minimize perforation and other risks. So we've also learned over time not to ablate inside the pulmonary veins, which can cause pulmonary vein stenosis. So we've come a long way in our progression of of interventional strategies for AFib. So those two things I think yeah, have definitely changed the playing field. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one thing that I failed to mention too is that we've changed our oral anticoagulation regimens too. So back in the early 2000s, we were essentially completely dependent on Coumadin. And now we've obviously transitioned to the NOAX. Yeah, definitely. So 2,700 patients, it's a big study. Yeah. And we should also say that the type of patients, so the, the patients that were included in the study, if you were 75 or older and had a prior stroke or TIA, or if you had any two of the following, if you're 65, you were female, hypertension, diabetes, LVH, chronic kidney disease. So those are kind of the main other factors that were the inclusion criteria for patients in the study. So actually the standard population of AFib patients that we tend to see in our practices. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to to ask you about that. So, you know, the other major kind of component of the study is that these were patients who had early AFib, right? Mm -hmm. Patients who had less than 12 months. So these are the paroxysmals and the persistence or early persistence, if you will. How realistic is that population with respect to when you're seeing AFib patients in clinic? How many would would you say are these early AFs versus more kind of these chronic or longstanding persistent AFs? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, it probably varies from practice to practice. We often get patients kind of late in the game and they've been in AFib for a long time or they've failed a couple of antirhythmic drugs. On the other side, we do get some early referrals uh, because patients are doing their internet research and looking into ablation and want to talk to somebody about it. And I think kind of the overall consensus among cardiologists in general is that now AFib ablation is, is becoming safer and that patients are willing to undergo that sooner as it compared to medicine. So uh, yeah, I think there's kind of a good mix of early AFib that I see in my practice and kind of late stage. It's a very important point too, whether it's kind of early stage versus late in terms of the success you're going to potentially have ablation or antirhythmic medications that you know early on, it's really 
about the triggers and that if you can control the triggers which come from the veins and, and make some lifestyle modifications, then you're going to be much better off if you do that early, as opposed to if you wait till later, once you get to persistent AFib, the atria start to remodel where they stretch out and they get fibrosis. And then, you know, the chance of having successful treatment at that point is much lower. Yeah. And we have some pretty good recent data from DCAF2 that talks about fibrosis and the uh, success of, of RF. And maybe we can talk about that on, a, on another episode. Yeah, for sure. sure. So you had brought this up. I'm glad you did. So when we're talking about medications versus ablation, maybe we just dive into this main figure here of the paper, figure one. I wanted to ask you, so in the rhythm control group, we're looking at this bar figure and it says, okay, there were about 8% of patients who underwent ablation as part of their early rhythm control strategy. So why don't we just start with that? What do you think of that 8% ablation as part of yeah, the early rhythm? I, I think I probably get a skewed vision of it because <laughs> by the time patients come to me, we're talking about ablation. But I think probably in the general cardiology uh, clinic population that this might be pretty accurate that people are trying a number of different interesting medications uh, before considering ablation. And I think that's uh, totally appropriate. By the guidelines, you, you can offer ablation as first-line therapy. It's more of a class two indication. It really comes down to, can patients tolerate antiretinic medications at all? Sometimes they have baseline sinus bradycardia, or sometimes they just have a fear of taking antiretinic medications. And so they kind of prefer to start with ablation. When you get into some of the complex, like the class three antiretinic drugs, like for example, sotalol and dofetilide, which tend to be kind of my second choice. I think kind of first line is probably flecainide or propafenone. But those medications cannot be taken if you have a history of coronary disease or, or structural heart disease. And so I think in, in this kind of day when everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people get you know nuclear perfusion stress tests or they get a coronary angiogram and it says possible small area of scar or kind of mild kind of non-obstructive coronary disease, then you're kind of stuck. We're like, well, maybe I can't use a flecainide. And so then you're talking about using something else. And so when it comes down to talking about risks of sotalol or dofetilide and actually even just loading the medication, we're talking about three nights in the hospital, two or three nights in the hospital to load sotalol or dofetilide compared to AFib ablation now, which since the COVID pandemic, we've been sending many of our AFib ablation patients home the same day. So, and then in the long run, there are long-term potential risks with these medications that we worry about compared to the upfront risks of having an ablation. Absolutely. Those are some great points. So I wanted to ask you, it still seems like, according to this study anyways, about 20% of the patients were still treated with amiodarone as their early rhythm control strategy. Do you think that drug is still being used as part of primary treatment, or do you think that drug is being used after things like you said have been ruled out, propafenone, flecainide, maybe sotalol, things like that? Yeah, I think it's still in certain population probably used frequently. I think if patients are, for example, very elderly, and you think that they might be able to tolerate destination amiodarone therapy without having the long-term toxic effects. Again, the, the, the coronary disease and structural heart disease population can't get the class 1C agents like flecainide or propafenone. So that kind of takes them off the table. Chronic kidney disease and baseline QT interval are often factors that limit the use of dofetilide and sotalol. So then at some point you get stuck with just having you know amiodarone or dronetarone as your, your backup options. And dronetarone also kind of these warnings about baseline bradycardia or heart failure for which that medication will be contraindicated. So even though amiodarone can have potential long-term toxicities, it is 
actually probably the most effective medicine we have. And sometimes kind of the, the, the only choice you have looking at all comorbidities. And do you have a, a practice preference as far as how often are you checking patients nowadays for those sorts of issues, liver issues, lung issues? Is it once a year, every six months? Usually every six months that I'll get a kind of LFTs and a, a TSH. Gotcha. And, you know, as, as surgeons, we're pretty used to using amiodarone postoperatively, mm-hmm. but we yeah. don't, as you know, we don't typically follow our patients for a long enough time to kind of get an idea of what a maintenance dose would be. What is it? 200 twice a day, 400 daily. What is what yeah. are patients on? Do you think? Yeah. And I'll say also, I do also like to use amiodarone as bridge therapy, for example, waiting a couple of months for ablation, put patients on amiodarone to tide them over, you know, post-ablation, similar to you in post-surgical maze, that using amiodarone again for another one to three months sometimes helps get patients over the hump of post-op recovery to give them the best chance at maintaining sinus rhythm. The other advantage of it is that if you can keep somebody in sinus rhythm for several months, your, your atrium can shrink down and you can have a better long-term chance of, of success. The dose, maintenance dose, usually 200 milligrams daily. The loading dose, I vary it. If I have a kind of a frail, somewhat frail person, or if they have kind of relatively slow heart rates, I will load it 200 milligrams twice a day for a month. But patients, if they're in hospital and if they're otherwise quite robust, you can be as aggressive as uh, 400 milligrams three times a day until you get to your goal loading dose of eight to 10 grams before you kind of go on to your maintenance dose. And then some patients that it might be either destination amiodarone and, or they're doing well maintaining sinus for them for months to years, sometimes we'll, we'll back it down to 100 milligrams a day just to minimize their lifetime uh, dose. That makes sense. All right. So we've talked about these interventions and according to the study, it looks like they were pretty successful. Most of the patients, about 95% of patients still got the treatment that they were intended to get. And so let's, what I found interesting about this study, and I would love to hear your thoughts, is they didn't get into kind of the the typical AFib outcomes that we are used to seeing, meaning like they didn't get into a lot of the monitoring, the burden, the, if you will, success of rhythm control, which I guess kind of makes sense when you're comparing it to rate control. But I was wondering what, what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, I did think that was interesting too. It looks like they probably had somewhat like a home telemetry monitor, which they said a single lead EKG, and they would transmit, I think they said twice per week if having symptoms. So if not having symptoms, they were not transmitting. Now, if they did have symptoms and transmitted and found AFib and they were in the rate in the rhythm control group, they're brought into the clinic and they got modification of their therapy, either up titration of their pharmacotherapy or kind of a discussion about catheter ablation. One important point about that is because the kind of rhythm monitoring was symptom driven, the patients chosen for the study, 30% of them were asymptomatic. That's a big deal because in general and by the guidelines, we, we don't offer rhythm control strategy for asymptomatic AFib. It's really for symptomatic AFib. And once the patients were kind of randomized to their their arm, 70% were asymptomatic. And the important point of that is, well, one, I guess, right control can make people feel better. I, I guess that's important. But number two, the outcomes showed that there was a definitely a benefit from rhythm control strategy with regards to mortality and stroke, regardless of symptoms. And I think that's that might be a major game changer in terms of for whom we offer rhythm control strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, it was interesting that 
it was about sending a rhythm strip when you were symptomatic. And just like you said, there was this significant portion of the, of the treatment group that were, if you will, the rhythm controls treatment group that was asymptomatic. So it's always hard to kind of make out how many episodes are, are happening that are asymptomatic that may be leading to adverse effects. That being said, the rhythm control group still had less of the primary outcome, whether it was symptomatic or asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, it seems like most patients were on anticoagulation still. Yeah, I think those are a couple of good points. One about the monitoring also, yeah, it would be wonderful to have an implantable loop recorder in everybody, but just not really a cost-effective way to do a study or to, to manage AFib in general. But I think in general, if you look at AFib studies, what the standard of recurrence is, is a 30-second episode of AFib. And I feel like it's probably really unfair for studies because what we really want to see is, is there a reduction in AF burden? I think that's kind of the main thing. But again, there's no perfect test except an implantable loop recorder in terms of even having you know, a two-week MCT monitor is just also spot check. It's just a longer spot check, right? So although it would kind of find asymptomatic AFib, which was not really found in this study based upon kind of symptom-driven ECG transmissions. What do you think about this idea that the overall outcome was decreased, which included stroke, even though both populations were still on anticoagulation? I I think it's compelling. I think think that really shows that rhythm control is important in terms of minimizing long-term risks. Absolutely. We start to think about that more and more now also as we, you know, in the surgical population, we manage the left atrial appendage But we know from historic studies that when Dr. Cox was following his patients, that it wasn't just the folks who had their left atrial appendage managed where we had a reduction in stroke, but we actually had even a more reduction in patients who were in normal sinus rhythm and had their appendage managed. So there does seem to be something in addition to the rhythm control on top of the appendage management that can reduce your stroke risk. Yeah, two interesting points about that. I think that original study with Dr. Cox, the, the follow-up, if I recall correctly, was a phone call to the patients to ask right. if they were an AFib, which, you know, so it's unclear back then how much, how many patients are actually having it or if they're actually asymptomatic, but having a The appendage is interesting, not only for stroke risk reduction, but also for rhythm management. There, there are some data showing that if you can electrically isolate the appendage, that may have some benefit in terms of maintaining a sinus rhythm. I wonder, and I don't, I don't know that there's evidence for it about, is there any harm to removing the appendage? The appendage is a, is a flow reservoir. It, it can accommodate a lot of volume in, in the case of volume overload. It's kind of the main, it's the main source of atrial natriuretic peptide, which is important for diuresis and natriuresis. So you wonder if removing the appendage might have an effect on heart failure in the future. That being said, if you can get patients to sinus rhythm, they tend to feel better and, and actually their heart failure risk is reduced. And so I wonder if it's a trade-off in terms of heart failure risk of removing the appendage versus, but I see, I, I think the trend or, or kind of the, what we're getting towards is that there is an advantage to removing the appendage for rhythm control, but also for stroke risk reduction. The other part of this paper that I found at least reassuring, you know, we have more and more data that's coming out now that's speaking to the relationship between AF and cognitive dysfunction or AF and dementia. And in this paper, I thought it was really interesting that they pointed as far as when they looked at the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Score, I'll just reference for the audience, this is table two, efficacy outcomes kind of towards the bottom. And it's part of the key secondary outcomes at two years. I talk to my patients and I, I tell them, hey, look, I am concerned that you may be having these silent strokes and this may lead to dementia over time. 
at least in this paper, it shows that, hey, if you have early AF and it's only been a couple of years and we are testing your cognitive function, that maybe those effects haven't kicked in yet, aren't having those detrimental effects yet. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think microemboli leading to cognitive dysfunction is is an important thing. And there are, I think there are some imaging studies selling infarcts in patients with AFib and correlating that with uh, cognitive decline. So I think that's a very important point. And, and I think that rhythm control, you know, could be a factor in terms of minimizing cognitive decline. Yeah, absolutely. We have decreased primary outcome. We have essentially the same safety profile. We have essentially the same secondary outcomes. Are there any other points about those results that that you wanted to touch on before I ask you a few more questions? Also that the, yes, the composite outcome was was a positive finding, but also individually that cardiovascular death and stroke both individually were significantly reduced. I think that's very important, very important points that, that puts the affirm trial to rest, that there is definitely a benefit to rhythm control. And it has implications in terms of offering treatment to patients even without symptoms, although we're not there yet where we can definitely say that asymptomatic patients should get antrhythmic drugs and ablation. But I think on a patient-by-patient basis, it could be considered, and I'm anxious to see the upcoming updates of AFib guidelines to see what they say about that. Thank you for pointing those out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting because we assume, or at least we've always assumed that the death outcome is always driven by stroke. And this, this paper kind of links the two, you know, with, with what you just said, that folks in the early rhythm control group had decreased amounts of stroke and decreased death. I think heart failure too. I think that's, you know, as a main component of cardiovascular death, definitely the risk of developing heart failure is there. One of the other outcomes they looked at, I think total number of nights in the hospital, which was not different between the two groups. But if you consider to look back and see how many were on sodal or dofetilide, you know, that buys you two or three nights in the hospital just to load it. So that it would have to have been countered by hospitalizations for other things in the in the rhythm control arm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, you had mentioned that earlier. There's the advantage of rhythm control, but it may take a little longer to establish. And then you add that with, you know, maybe somebody who's had a, a intervention who stays overnight or something like that. So yeah, all that may have just bounced out in, the, in that rhythm control group. So do you think this is going to change practice? I think it will actually. Yeah, I think this is a this is a major game changer. So and do you think it'll change practice at the level of the EP, at the level of the internist, the family practice doc, the primary cardiologist? Yeah, I think all levels, but I think importantly in the primary care and cardiology office using these data to guide patients on on lifestyle modifications in terms of other risk factor modification that you really have to be quite aggressive about it. That AFib, silent AFib or or not silent, asymptomatic AFib is not a benign thing. Patients need to know that, you know, they, they need to make their lifestyle changes, which importantly, I think one of the main ones is weight loss, because I think a lot of our, our patients are overweight or obese. And there are, there are strong data showing that weight loss greater than 10% of your body weight definitely reduces your AFib burden. And it cures so many other things. You can you can cure hypertension, you can cure sleep apnea, diabetes, all of which independently contribute to AFib. So yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, what are your kind of priorities for those lifestyle modifications when patients come in? And it sounds like you've, you've hit them kind of right on the head there, the main one being weight loss. 
Yeah. And, and sleep apnea is another one. I think even patients that, that don't snore, I, I get a sleep study in almost, almost everybody. And actually we have an ongoing study here doing home sleep monitoring for every patient with AFib who's not had a prior sleep. We find AFib in a lot of patients. A lot of patients are don't, they know what sleep apnea is and they know what a CPAP machine is and they don't want to even consider wearing a CPAP machine, but I have to counsel them that CPAP has been proven to reduce AFib burden. So if you're going to go through the the risk of, of a procedure or one of these antirhythmic drugs with potential life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia is that you should do everything possible to minimize chance of recurrences. And I, and I make the point that it, you know the ablation is not the answer. I, I, I tell them, even if I tell you of a perfect ablation, it's not a cure, that you're going to have to do everything possible to stay in normal rhythm. Right. Absolutely. Can you walk us through what you think that narrative will be like, let's say you start getting all these, all these patients who are referred earlier and earlier. Can you kind of walk us through your, your algorithm, if you will, for these patients? I talk to them about medicines and ablation. I definitely always talk about weight loss, sleep study. There are data for smoking uh, tobacco and also alcohol contributing to AFib. So there is even a study, an imaging study looking at kind of moderate alcohol or more showing a higher degree of atrial fibrosis, uh, which is thought to be a potential direct toxic effect on the atria. So limiting alcohol to zero or one drinks per day, definitely smoking cessation. Exercise, very important. I, I tell patients to get a, a pedometer and you know aim for 10,000 steps a day. I think there are even data for, for yoga actually reducing not only symptoms of AFib, but actually burden of AFib. And I, I think the, the point of that, because patients often ask about, you know, can stress cause AFib? I think it probably... Can I think so? So I think that exercise and whether it be yoga or walking is is therapeutic for patients for many ways, not just for weight loss, but for kind of making them feel better. And I think that has an important effect. And so, and you had mentioned earlier, you know, we're kind of at this phase where we're sorting out asymptomatic versus symptomatic. So, with that being said, do you have a monitoring technique that you prefer to evaluate whether these interventions, these lifestyle modifications? are leading to a decrease in AF burden, or again, is it simply based on symptoms? I guess what I'm getting at is how do you decide what that threshold is to then increase the intervention, whether that's an additional medication, whether that's going to the cath lab or the EP lab, obviously, how do you kind of sort that out? Yeah, I think a lot of it then uh, in terms of talking about at this point, antirhythmic drug circulation is symptom-driven. So if if they're asymptomatic, it's it's harder to justify the, the meds or the, or the ablation, except if the patient is is knows kind of the long-term effects and they're kind of also pushing for it. So it has to be kind of a joint decision. I, I tend to offer ablation relatively early just because of all the data we have. Uh, and if patients are willing, then I, I proceed with that. In terms of monitoring in general, I ask, you know, how often do you monitor? I, I think, you know, an MCT monitor for two weeks, once a year, if they have AFib can help to see if they're having progression. The importance of that also that MCT, the mobile cardiac telemetry. That's a little bit different than kind of a loop recorder or looping monitor. So you have to make sure that you order it correctly because the looping monitor will not be a continuous assessment. It'll just be whenever the patient presses a button. So it's important for primary care and other providers to know to get the one that is continuous monitoring that can actually quantify burden of AFib, even if the patient doesn't feel anything. And even if the patient doesn't press a button. You want to just mention what those devices are so that the audience can kind of know about them by name. Yeah, they're different companies. I think that if you just say mobile cardiac telemetry or MCT, that's the type that you want to use so that you okay. can actually find it. Gotcha. I mean, patients are, 
there are a number of apps now available on the market that are kind of very helpful and, and smart watches that are very accurate and that we actually record or, or take those rhythm strips that patients send us and we can put them into our electronic medical record. And that is considered uh, documentation of diagnosis. So what's on the market now available with these smartwatches and smart apps for telephones uh, are quite accurate. I wanted to ask you about that and I'll, I'll probably let you go after that. I know you're very busy clinically. You've been around long enough where you have seen kind of this progression from these smartwatches, if you will, of before and after. How has that changed your your practice? Yeah, I think it's made it easier. I think it's, it's raised patients' awareness, patients' concern. And I think overall, that's been a great thing in terms of having patients take control of their health. It Maybe it's widened the gap of disparities that, you know, not everybody can afford a smartwatch or a, or a smartphone with an app that can that can do this. But certainly, for I think it has helped us manage patients for sure. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, maybe the way we'll finish this up is if you can, in in your own words, just summarize ultimately what you would want the audience to know about East AF, and then I'll I'll let you go. Yeah. No. I think it's it's a landmark study. I think it's it's changed our view of of atrial fibrillation towards a goal of rhythm control strategy with medicines or ablation to improve or to minimize cardiovascular death and stroke. And I think it's a very important study for that reason. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tedros. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. And uh, like I said, hopefully we can have you on, on another episode soon. I'd love that. That would be an honor. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.